Welcome to Gen X Films and Friends, the podcast where three friends discuss the films that shaped and scarred them. This episode was recorded May of 2020. Within the first minute of the movie, Aurora Greenway, neurotically worrying that her baby is dead, solves her dilemma by continually pinching her baby until the child cries. Worry's gone, she leaves the baby alone to cry in its room. This is Shirley MacLaine's character throughout the movie, an extremely selfish, deeply loving mother. Terms of Endearment received five Oscars, including Best Picture, But is it really possible for a movie to convey the 30 years that go by and show our main characters grow? Welcome, everyone. I am one of your hosts, Don Olmstead. I'm Carrie Troy. I'm Beverly Neubauer. (laughs) This uh, podcast is now reviewing Terms of Endearment. Um, How'd you guys feel? Um, I realized I didn't remember. It's like two kind of parts of a movie, the life. And I feel like it's Deborah Winger's relationships and how she relates to people in her life. And then her getting cancer. And I always thought the entire movie was about her getting cancer, except for like 15 minutes. Me Um, too. Yeah. That's exactly how I remembered it. Yeah. I was like, I don't remember any of this. I remember John Lithgow. I knew she had an affair. And I also remember a scene that doesn't exist where her kids realize that she's having an affair with John Lithgow when she has cancer, but that didn't happen. Nice. I really liked the movie. I thought it was the most real movie I've seen about the how complicated relationships are and how they're not flat and it's not black and white that there's a lot of gray in relationships and how you can have somebody in your life who is pretty toxic but you can still find a way to have a decent relationship with them I thought it was I thought it did a good job of exploring how complicated yeah I found it refreshing that everybody was effed up and everybody (laughs) still you know loved each other and had their own thing but they weren't they weren't demonized you know, right, right. they were just people. Yeah. When I was looking through the awards, I felt kind of bad for Jeff. Oh my gosh. Daniels. Jeff Daniels. He didn't get any recognition, but I also. It was his first, I think it was his first film. Oh, was it? But he did a really good job of like being that kind of, you kind of don't like him, but it's kind of not his fault. Like he's just kind of, that's just the way he is. And I think he played a good job of being kind of not memorable yeah yeah. because I feel like that was one of the reasons why Shirley MacLaine didn't want my one of my favorite lines is he can't even fail locally that was (laughs) (laughs) like I just really loved that I was shocked that he didn't get anything but like I said, I think his character was just kind of one note and he was supposed to be that way. And he did a good job playing it. And I also missed a lot of innuendos when I was younger. The back yeah. door being open cracked me up. Oh, the back door's open. <laughs> <laughs> so this is based on a book and Jack Nicholson's mm-hmm. character was not in the book. It was the director specifically created it um, and, and he created it for Burt Reynolds. Oh, how interesting. We were saying it's one of the least Jack Nicholson-y, Jack Nicholson roles, but I didn't agree with that. Jeff said that, and I did not agree with that. I feel like it's very Jack. I feel like this is 
where Jack Nicholson got really Jack Nicholson-y and kind of made his stamp and his trademark. But God, and he did such a good job just playing like this kind of aloof, egotistical, unaware, but kind of lovable character. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I wondered if um, this was when they decided to cast him in that movie. Oh, I wish I remembered the name of the movie. You know, there was a movie where he plays the devil. Witches of Eastwick. Because he seemed very much Witches of Eastwick in this to me. He seems so Witches of Eastwick. Like, there's a scene where I was like, wait, which movie am I watching? Mm -hmm. Another thing that I thought was interesting is it was very, like, I feel like I would be curious to know if Steel Magnolias is the same director or... If they took the same kind of, because it was a very, it was a very similar rhythm of Steel Magnolias and a very similar like music and a very similar tone. And there were things in this movie and I was like, I thought that was in Steel Magnolias. And so I was, I'm just curious. I'd be curious to find that out. Yeah. Well, I know. So um, the director, uh, he, this is his first movie that he ever directed. Mm -hmm. But he was on, he worked on the Mary Tyler Moore show and like all these other things. I'm trying to remember what else about him. He's the one he was I think he was a writer actually on the Mary Tyler Moore show. So that's probably why he felt comfortable writing Jack Nicholson parts. And the main reason why he chose him to be an astronaut is because he was like, I've been in Houston. It's like astronaut town. And that's why he made him an astronaut. Well, I think it was good to make him something that's kind of this amazing, spectacular thing that's kind of fallen from grace. I loved the part where he's with the girls and he's like grabbing that girl's hair and he falls out of the car and she gives him this big speech about, I came to see a hero and you're just a big loser. Like, mm-hmm. and like, I'm not coming inside with you because you're a gross, dirty old man. And I appreciated that very much. So a fun tidbit with that scene is the director didn't like that woman's voice. So her voice is dubbed over. (laughs) (laughs) Darth Vader. Did you know, I'm sorry, I know this is not the same movie, but Darth Vader, the guy who was in the suit, didn't know he was going to end up being voiced by James Earl Jones. Yes. Yeah. There's, isn't there, I think there's a documentary about like how it like, like, like he thought it was going to like make his career and it, it, didn't and he did all the movies in the suit or at least the first one he did the whole movie in the suit thinking this was his big break and nope sorry (laughs) i guess carrie fisher called him farmer vader because he had like a hickish hickish british accent (laughs) in her opinion interesting but anyway sorry back to the movie terms of endearment uh, it's the first movie we've watched that passes the Bechtel test. Which Oh, uh, yes, because yes, there's does. a lot of females in there. Well, you can still have a lot of females, but if they're talking just about dudes, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. And like, they I, don't spend much time talking about dudes at all. A little bit with Jack Nicholson and a little bit with Flap, but other than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say talking about dudes, talking about love interests. I think yeah. specifically is with the I think it's talking about another man is what it is. So if it's a movie talking about a love interest who's a woman, it's fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I also, one of the things I realized in this is Shirley MacLaine is really good at um, like where to put her hands. Like I remember 
taking acting classes younger and someone's like, I never know what to do with my hands. And to show, she did such a good job of showing when they're having the conversation, uh, her and Jack Nicholson at the fence. And it's, you can tell that she's uncomfortable, but she doesn't want to come around that way. And she starts like Mm -hmm. fidgeting with her belt and moving, like holding her waist and trying to find a way to stand. And I just thought it was really like, I don't know. I love Shirley MacLaine. And I just thought it was really, yeah. She said that that character was the most similar to her, that she wasn't. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm not surprised. But I do love Aurora. I mean, I did. I do love her so much because she just won't. um, I don't know. What am I when she's hanging the Renoir in the when they're hanging the Renoir in the hospital room and Mm. she yells at him and says, um, this is more money than you'll make in your lifetime. Be careful. And then she like pats him on the back and she's like, thank you so much. Like <laughs> as he's leaving, like she knows she's kind of erratic. The same with the nursing scene when she's screaming about the, um, the pain medication. And then she's like, composes herself and the nurse is running into the room and she's like, thank you for doing that. You know? So I think like she knows that she needs to be, where she needs to be hard and she knows when someone responds to that, that she should be grateful for it. The relationship with John Lithgow for me was a little bit, it's a little bit of an odd, it was a little bit of an odd thing for me because she seemed so into flap that it seemed like an odd choice at that time. But then I get the being completely overwhelmed by being a mother and kind of being seen by somebody. I kind of saw, cause they showed them fighting before. Mm-hmm right beforehand um and and they were fighting over money because she wanted money she was trying to get it from her mom and her husband freaked out at her right Mm -hmm. and then she goes to get groceries she can't pay it and then she's got this knight in shining armor that takes care of it for her and also backs her up and saying that the cheer was a bit I think that to me, like if they didn't have that scene, I also would be like, where did this come from? But I felt like mm-hmm. that was a spark that could then develop more. And we don't necessarily see that because the next time we see them, they're holding hands in a restaurant talking about how they haven't sinned yet. They just have been thinking about it. Right, right. Um, I guess with Jonathan Lithgow, he filmed this, the original actor got fired and they filmed all of his scenes in three days uh, like in a, during a break during footloose oh my gosh <laughs> yeah he was a busy man in the 80s yeah i loved him i forgot how much i loved him until i saw him i mean he's not necessarily um handsome like i don't necessarily love him for his looks but like seeing him in that movie made me want to see the world according to garp oh, oh yes. yeah oh, i loved him i want to see that again oh i loved him in that yeah. yeah, I love John Lithgow. Um, I think he's, I don't know. I've loved him since I was little, especially with Harry and the Hendersons. Is yeah. what did it for me. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. And I remember we were in California and um, we were on in Disneyland on Huckfin Island. And my mom was like, that's John Lithgow. That's John Lithgow. And I was like, what? And she said, the guy, the guy from Manhattan Project and Harry and the Hendersons. And I was like, well, let's go talk to him. And she's like, no, he's with his family. So then she just made us like stalk him for like an hour <laughs> in Disneyland from afar. And then you could kind of tell that he was, 
he could kind of tell it was us or, and I'm pretty sure it was him because his voice is so distinct. And that's how my mom knew it was him. She's like, it's him. I, I know that voice anywhere. So we lost him once we got off Huxley Island. Yes, that is a fond memory. So Don, what did you think of the movie? Uh, I think it's the best movie we've watched so far. What's I funny agree. is I, I love the movie. I love the acting. I love how real it is in showing how so many relationships are just dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because people cause us pain, it doesn't stop us from loving them and still wanting to be around them. Oh my God, if my mom was like Shirley MacLaine's character... I don't know how how I would have come out so easygoing as Deborah Winger's character. <laughs> I think I would have been like a ball of nerves the whole time. It's like when her mom was mean or said things, it just, she found a way to laugh about it. At the same time, I, uh, I didn't like the story in the aspect that Shirley MacLaine's character, there's, and actually Deborah Winger's character, they're very solid in who they are, and you don't see any growth. At least I didn't feel like you see any growth in that. I I felt like you definitely see growth with Shirley MacLaine, like as far as loosening up. And I mean, one of the things I noticed too is as the movie progresses, they like her hair gets less she gets less perfect looking and she gets more and more kind of relaxed looking. And um, I think for her, like you get to see her go from this totally uptight, um, not really wanting to share herself with anybody to like sharing, like almost oversharing with Jack Nicholson when she says she loves him after like what, like a couple of, you know, like they haven't seen each other in a while and, and then for her to go back and be like, I want to know what you think about that. I, I feel like she, she gets more vulnerable and she opens herself up more to people and becomes more relaxed and more less worried about how people perceive her and more about kind of her letting people in and trying to be there for Deborah Winger and being there for the kids and stuff like that. So, and then why Danny DeVito, Danny DeVito was in Houston or not Houston in Nebraska at the, at the hotel where she was staying, taking care of the kids. I'm like, how did this happen? I'm very confused by how Danny DeVito is in like almost every scene, but. I don't remember that. I noticed yeah, it when she's, yeah. When she's coming in to the pool and Jack Nicholson's coming oh, out of the room, Danny DeVito's okay. in the background drying the kids off. I remember that. <laughs> I'm like, what I'm you're are you guys still talking like I don't know I mean he was obsessed with her that was the whole thing because that was one of the lines don't worship me until you have a reason to until I deserve it that's what it was what did you think Beverly you've been pretty quiet I figured she's waking up (laughs) no I um I liked it in the moment and then after afterwards I didn't like it Like, when I was watching it, I felt like everything was well acted. The characters were complex and annoying and good, except (laughs) black. It wasn't as complex as I wanted. And there were some scenes which, like, that that definitely annoyed me as much as I remembered them annoying me back when I was a kid. There's, like, two scenes I still remember from being a kid. And one of them is the scene with the uptight New York 
um, um, moms or well, mom, no, non-moms, the crowd and yeah. how there's a strong distinction between her who chose to have three children and be a housewife and never worked and them who all chose to have careers and had abortions or sent their kids to bo- boarding school. And like, there's this total dichotomy, which I always, ever since I was a kid and saw that scene, I was just so irritated by that dichotomy and that sort of play of the women as being impossible to reconcile because of their distinct difference. But anyway, um, I, I just always thought that was a cheap shot at feminism. Overall, like in the moment I was in it, I totally teared up at the end. I was laughing, I was in it. But then later I thought about it and I just was feeling really dissatisfied. And I think it's the style of the movie where it's a, a bunch of two minute vignettes stitched together by, I'm sorry, really bad theme music. I was so sick of that theme song. <laughs> it's like, I could almost, by the end of the night, I was like, after every sentence with James, I was humming the theme song to him. Like, and now we're done. We're moving to two years. <laughs> <and three. laughs> And then, and so having this conversation, one thing that struck me as I was looking through your notes, Dawn, is that the writer wrote Lonesome Dove. And I was like, oh, yeah, that explains it. Because I read Lonesome Dove and I really wanted to love Lonesome Dove. And at the end, I hated Lonesome Dove because it's the same thing. It's just all these vignettes stitched together and you don't really get into the meat of any one moment. And so, like, I felt like they got into the complexity of human relationships but then they didn't let you really sink into it at all because then they moved on to the next vignette. So like there's the scene where she's yelling at her son in the parking lot and then turning and flirting with John Lithgow. And I was like, hold on, like Deborah Winger, I really like her. She's a really sympathetic character. You get that she's at the end of her rope with her kid and you get that she's, you know, I get her motivation for having an affair with John Lithgow. And, and, but I wanted to see some sort of reflection, some sort of a, Gosh, yelling at my kid multiple times in the parking lot is probably like, I just wanted to see some sort of personal growth moment. So when you said you don't feel like you don't see the characters grow, I kind of like, you're right, Kiri. Shirley MacLaine's character definitely is complex and, and changes over time. But I, I just felt like I wanted to see something, just any something signaling that that was a moment like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I felt like it was just it sort of just slid by and and it, like, maybe it was okay. Maybe it wasn't okay. Maybe it's my, my desire for judgment. I guess maybe I'm judgy, but I just wanted there to be some sort of a, you know, don't, don't yell at your kid in a parking lot over and over <laughs> and over and then turn and flirt with somebody else. Like, right. That's weird. I just thought it was hilarious. Cause then John Lithgow's like, you're so good with them. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. Right true. after that. And it was like, oh wow. That was interesting. We yeah. had a conversation, Jeff and I had a conversation about that. Um, we felt like there was, we, we said, oh, it must be int- there. He said something at one point, like we must be missing something. I feel like the book would be better because like you said, it's these quick little vignettes that are p- kind of put together. And then Jeff left the room for a minute, came back. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How many kids does she have now? Is she, how, how much time has passed? And I'm like, that's the same kid. And he's like, well, she looks really pregnant now. And I was like, okay, so it's been a couple of weeks maybe, but like, <laughs> It was constantly, and he's like, okay, did we move 15 years ahead? You know, if you left the room, you would come back and be like, what the hell's going on? But then I thought it was funny because, like, when she got married, her dress was very, like, 70s, 80s. Like, everything kind of stayed on the same year, even though she was growing up. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a little bit confusing to me as, like, what year it was supposed to be. And sometimes it was hard, easy to miss that she had grown up some 
the part where she's watching the astronaut move in and it's, you know, she's got like kind of this like 1950s, 60s dress on and then she's smoking pot with her friend. I thought that was the same night. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, she she had a retainer in before. So it was a little bit hard to distinguish kind of that there the was passage movement. of time cues were subtle right you yeah had to be, you had like, to be paying attention for sure yeah You'd be like what the hell just happened um i was thinking with uh when you were talking beverly it made me realize i i think watching the movie i don't feel necessarily that you're engaged it's more like you're a voyeur mm-hmm. like i don't know yeah i don't know how to explain I get that no i think you're right yeah, mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I think that's the writer's style is you just kind of gloss over the surface of things. You don't get to, maybe you're not supposed to like judge or analyze or anything like that. You're just supposed to watch. Well, <laughs> and the scene where she goes nuts about the pain medication that used to super get me. And then this time I'm like, well, wait a minute. Deborah Winger's never showed that she's in pain. Like yeah, well, you're just screaming, pain. but there's never been any, there's never been anything leading up to your frustration at this point. So then it was kind of like what's happening off screen that we're not aware of. Mm-hmm. We're supposed so, to make a lot of inferences about what's happening. Right. Off right exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that scene used to just get me. And now I just, I was like, Oh, well this doesn't really add up. And I felt like the, the, I don't know, the struggle with cancer was very like, look, I don't have makeup on and I have bruises on my face now. Like <laughs> I'm fine. Everything's fine. It, I, I just, uh, yeah, it could have gone a little deeper for sure. When I think about a lot of 80s movies, I don't think about a lot of in-depth kind of, I feel like everything was very surface. Yeah, that part. was one thing I was wondering is maybe that <clears throat> is that is that a transition between the 80s and now. We expect our dramas to really get in there. Our comedies right. can certainly be glossy and our action movies mm-hmm. can be surface level. Although even sometimes then they get into these huge character motivation things like right. in the Avengers where you're just like, oh, come on, you guys, stop. Stop trying to make this deep. It's not deep. <laughs> it's not deep. Sorry. I got to say also, my the, it, it always bugged me as a kid that the dad gave up his kids so easily. Yeah. And then at the end when James, so James didn't watch this movie with me until the last like 20 minutes. And then he came in the room and he was watching with me and he was pissed that he gave up the kids, which I'm like, good, good. Glad to know you'll be raising your kids if I'm not. <laughs> um, but he was just like, like, really, that's it? You're not gonna, there's no, there's no deeper conversation. Like, you're just like, oh, I'm super opposed to it with your mom. But then when my wife asked me, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I don't really want him. Just right. Like, and I think that's where I got irritated with how flat his character was, was you don't know any, enough of his context to be able to understand why he would be like, what about his family? What about, I mean, there's universities in Texas. Could he move closer? Could he do some sort of a shared thing, recognizing that he's working and it's, there weren't daycares and a lot of support at the time? Like, is there anything but just to say, well, you're out. That was hard for, that was hard to, mm-hmm. yeah. So for me, I felt at that moment, because she'd said that she didn't want uh, Rebecca or whatever the name of his lover was. Janice. Janice, yeah. R- Janice right, raising our children. So for me, I felt like he was making the choice. Do I want to whore around still or raise my children? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I think he realized his he would not stop finding ladies to love. And so that's why I thought why he kind of gave in was his, him understanding his character 
I mean, his, I don't mean character as in the character he played, but, you know, what makes, a piece of what makes him him. Mm-hmm. But I think that was yeah, one I think of that's the, what they were going I'm for. not saying yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I'm not saying no. it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in all honesty, like, I don't think he would have been a good father. I think that was the whole thing is like that his character just didn't try very hard. You know, and I think that was Shirley MacLaine's big beef with him, too, is like he just didn't try very hard. Like, it's too much effort to look in to see if he could move back to Texas. And why would he move back to Texas when his girlfriend's at, in Nebraska? Mm-hmm. You know, like who moves their whole family to have to continue an affair with somebody? And he said, and I, I swear there's a line where he says, it's the same money, but I'd be the head of the department. And I was like, mm-hmm. that is not good enough reason to uproot your entire family. I'm sorry. Not, I mean, I understand you want to be the head of the department, but if you're not going to make more money, what's the motivate, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I heard that wrong or. No, no, no that, said. that was accurate. That is what I he said, know, right? It just didn't, there was something about it that didn't click for me because, you know, it's hard work to be head of a department, like in a college campus. Like yeah. he obviously worked really hard on his career maybe that was just it. Like emotionally, he was too limited, but maybe it was his face. Maybe he should have had more of a like jerk face for me, but I'm just like, he seems like a guy who's, I just, it just didn't, it didn't all jive up for me. Like I felt like I needed to understand his character more. Maybe that's part of the problem with the style of the movies of vignettes is I didn't believe that he would give up that easily based on what I knew about him. And so I was supposed to make more inferences and be more in line with um aurora's character on my opinion of him but it just was like it was hard for me to get and i guess that's part part of the thing too is made me feel like it was related to the era because there are no i mean the two male characters garrett and um flap are both emotionally inept and incapable of really doing anything like raising a child which makes me wonder how did flap propose right deborah winger probably did I guess for me, Flap reminded me of Kyle, somebody who I had an on and off again relationship with when I was younger. And it was like the same character. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, just very like aloof and like, I'm going to try hard in this department, but I'm not going to try hard in this department. And so I, for me, I was just like, oh, of course he would be the head of a department, but be totally lazy, like in every other aspect of his life, because the only thing he really cared about was being a professor. And I loved, he gaslighted the hell out of Deborah Winger. Oh yeah. Yeah. He did. And that part where she is like, don't, don't be this guy. Like I'm giving you the opportunity. Don't do this. And what a horrible person you are for blaming it on my pregnant hormones. So I'm giving you an opportunity to not be a shit and to like come clean right now. And then Aurora calls. And then when he says, Oh Yeah when when he has the baby and he's talking to what was her name janice mm-hmm. and he says he says oh yeah you caught us just before we did anything we haven't even done anything and it was just like oh my god just stop just stop yeah mm-hmm. but i was also shocked that she didn't leave him yeah i thought that she had when she went to houston i guess i remember her leaving him and i didn't realize that she went back to him and was like everything's okay and yeah that was part was confusing too like why would she move to nebraska that was actually much harder for me to understand than why would he move to nebraska nebraska right why is she moving to nebraska with the kids like that yeah yeah for some reason i remember her moving in with aurora but that obviously didn't happen 
And then it was interesting to me too, after she confronts Janice uh, in Nebraska, how they're having a conversation and just so openly, she's like, oh, and then she's like, well, I have to talk to him about it first. And she said like, like this really honest conversation about it. And then he keeps wanting to go back to her, her lumps in her arm. And she's like, no, you are not going to get off the hook for this. Like, it was just interesting to me. Like, why stay in that? Yeah. But in my mind, how I kind of wrote that off was that it was a different time and there were different expectations on marriages. Mm-hmm. And it's written by a, I don't know. It's written, it's written by, by, a guy. by a Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He also, like you said, gaslighted her so mm-hmm. much. So who knows how much baggage she's got. Right. Um, that's going to make her want to stay. Well, and then part of me too was like, that that was her saying, I'm getting ready to leave. And then she got cancer. Yeah. I mean, and I can't imagine in 1983 being a single mom of three with no work history. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you, what do you do? How does that work? You know? You move in with your mom in Houston. I mean, clearly your mom is rich, inexplicably rich. And she's going to end up raising the kids anyway. (laughs) And your best friend is divorced. And all the women in New York are divorced. So it's not like it's that weird. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. That's true. I mean, it was only, what, four years before my my parents got divorced, three years before my parents got divorced. And I feel like the 80s was when everybody was getting divorced anyway. Right. <laughs> no fault divorce, right? I can't remember when no fault divorce became. Uh, the 70s. Think, but it wasn't it like late 70s. Yeah. Yeah. It was fairly recently. Or maybe it was early 70s, but still it was. Uh, it's like a cork coming off a champagne bottle, though. It was like, yeah. oh, shit, we can do this now. <laughs> I guess talking about no fault divorce I guess before that was a thing when couples wanted to get divorced a lot of the times they would hire a PI and then the husband would go to a hotel with a woman in order to make it look like they were having an affair so that they could have a reason to get divorced yeah oh interesting that was in couples that they both wanted to get divorced and, you know, we're amicable to each other. Mm-hmm. Then, or you did what my grandma did and you ran away with your kid and hid on a farm until, um, so that your husband couldn't find you and then tried to work it out that way. <laughs> I thought you were going to say until they presume you were dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't know exactly. At some point they just, I don't know what the legal part in the background was. I wish I did know because my grandpa was divorced four times. Oh, so. wow. Well, his fifth wife killed him. So um, that, I guess, shows how hard it was to get a divorce. <laughs> wow. I thought that sounds like a great story. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think that's why I'm re- watching movies like this. And I'm like, shit, I got better material in my family. <laughs> <laughs> if I may, one more pet peeve. Mm-hmm. So they go to New York and all they talk about is the female relationships and the tension there. There's so much to see in New York. Like there's so much to see and do in New York. And all it is, is luncheon and a party that her friend is throwing for her with a bunch of people she doesn't even know. Yeah, I thought that was odd. Mm -hmm. But if you guys ever get cancer and want to go to New York, we will do something else. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I did read that the scene where she's saying goodbye to the boys um, is they use it a lot in film schools and stuff um, to point out uh, as a good acting scene 
And I thought it was interesting because the, I thought the boys did a really good job. And um, when they did um, Evening Star, which is the follow-up, um, those two boys were the right age, but they didn't reach out to them at all. And is it, supposedly that has to do with the fact that the studios gave them more money. So they basically oh. went for A-list or as close to A-list celebrities for all those different places. Because not only did they not get it, but the woman who plays Patsy didn't get it. And the housekeeper didn't get it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Or, you know, the original from 83. I'm pretty you know sure it's Giovanni Ribisi plays one of the characters, one of the boys. No. And Juliette Lewis plays. Guy. Oh, did you? Oh, is it? Yeah. I can try to, I got it in my papers here and dig up their names, <sighs> but it wasn't. I know Juliette Lewis plays the toddler. I did. And it was, I can't remember if I watched them. I don't think I watched them back to back, but I think I watched them fairly close together. And it was kind of, I was, I didn't think it was going to be good. And it was actually pretty interesting. It's just yeah, the it was, kids are grown up and like the oldest one's in jail, I think. And I might be getting like three movies confused. And Juliette Lewis lives at home with Aurora and she's the little girl. And I think she still has a relationship with Patsy. And so when she gets mad at Aurora, she calls Patsy. And I remember I, it being a lot better than I anticipated. Okay. So. That doesn't mean it was good because a lot of times I'll go into a movie thinking this is going to be amazing. And then I'll come out and be like, well, that was a pile of crap. And then I'll watch it three years later and be like, oh, that wasn't so bad. But I've yeah, my expectations, expectations have a lot. Yes. And I think a lot of times every once in a while, like with the reboot of Ghostbusters, I was like, I had low expectations, but I had high hopes. <laughs> so it kind of came in a little bit above where I was expecting, you know? Yeah. I loved that movie. <laughs> yeah, I did too. I did too. Okay. I thought, and I thought it was a great, I thought they did a great job of making nods to the original, oh, but being the their own Weaver thing. At the end. Oh, I loved it. But I hated Wonder Woman. I could not stand Wonder Woman. I thought it was oh, one of the totally worst movies. I forgot she was even in it. <laughs> Who? Linda Carter or oh no. the movie oh, Wonder no, no, Woman no, no. I movie thought you're saying Wonder Linda Woman. Carter was in Ghostbusters I was no like, I'm like that. no she wasn't like Wonder Woman I had really high hopes and I was super disappointed and I and people a lot of women are like mad at me for saying that but I'm like the the best part of the movie is like the first 15 minutes and then some guy shows up and then yeah. it's like and I felt like she didn't seem aloof I felt like they just made her look dumb and then I just was confused. And I, to be fair, I did fall asleep in the middle of the movie. When I woke up, I was like, what the hell? Where are they? What is going on? I just, and then I felt like she didn't realize her power until a man pointed it out. <laughs> so I don't know. I just thought it was a pile of crap. So the, uh, my daughter needs her med scene didn't make you cry this time, you said? Are there other things? No, that... it didn't. It didn't make me, it didn't affect me the way it has in the past. And I think it's because there was no, there was nothing leading up to it. It was just like this weird random scene. And I don't remember it being that way. Yeah. Right. I think the boys, the scene with the boys was really hard for me. And mm -hmm. I just... I just love it when the little boy is shutting the door and she goes, well, I think that went better than I expected. How about you? And he's like, yeah, it did. Yeah. But then at the same time, that was pretty sweet. I love that she had the foresight to realize that her son would beat himself up as he got older for treating uh -huh. her so bad. And for her to just adamantly be like, I know you love me and I don't want you to be upset about it. Cause I know you love me. 
But then I was like, you didn't leave anything for the little kid. I was really impressed that she realized that 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 he would beat himself up later. And I'm glad she had that conversation with him. Although he ends up in jail. Yeah, I refuse (laughs) to believe the Evening Star plot line. I don't believe that he ends up in jail. (laughs) I think they told the story wrong. Larry, whatever, got mixed up on how it all went. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting sort of, I mean, I guess this is accurate to the times that the kids only get to be, they don't get to hear what's really going on. They only get to Mm -hmm. have a snippet of their mom during the whole illness phase. And she doesn't even say goodbye to the toddler, even though, of course, the toddler wouldn't remember. But still, you'd think mom would want to say goodbye to the toddler. Right, exactly. He's not like a toddler. He's like kindergartner. No, No, the girl. The girl. girl. Oh, my God. I was thinking of the little boy. No, yeah, no. Even see her. That's yeah, yeah. And I mean, granted, Melanie won't remember, but I mean, I would want to see my kids before I yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And then I compare that to like, uh, so sadly, we had some neighbors where the husband had cancer and died a few years ago, and so the kids were. I think the youngest was probably around nine, and the oldest was a teenager, so different ages. But they were like on the bed, hanging out with dad at the hospital. Mm. Like they were there and present through the whole thing. There was no like surprise. Your dad's not coming home again. They were there the whole, through the whole thing. And it was awful and painful, Mm -hmm. but as a family, they were emotionally aligned. And I just think Mm -hmm. how weird it would be. Maybe it is reasonable that Teddy would wind up in jail when you just, you don't don't really know what's going on. I know. So my grandpa passed in 83 was it 80? No, it was 1980. I was three and it was 1980. And I had no idea. Like my mom didn't let, have me go to the funeral. Like, I think they, I think there was a different idea of how kids should be involved with grief yes. to mm-hmm. protect him from it. And I just remember just being so confused on why he was not around. My poor grandma had to deal with me continually, you know, bothering her about what happened to grandpa. And I think if there yeah. would have been a funeral that I would have been allowed to go to, then I would have had a certain amount of closure, even if I was, you know, a toddler. Well, and there are, you know, families today that don't feel like it should be a family affair. You know, one of the other scenes that affected me that I don't remember it affecting me in the past was when Deborah Winger kind of wakes up and looks at her and waves goodbye and then she passes away. And then Shirley MacLaine's reaction of yeah. like, I thought that I would be relieved and I'm not. And yeah. Then, that was hard for me. And that was very, that was like very hospice-y. Yeah. There is a sense of relief, but there's not at the same time. I think that was very touching to me. And I don't remember in the past it being that, I, I don't remember understanding it very well, but totally understanding it in the moment. And I just think she just did such an amazing job in that scene too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, sure and then I kind of felt like bad for Flap because Flap didn't get his moment to really like break down because he had to be the strong one. But in reality, there is, that's the way it is, is like <laughs> there is usually one fairly strong person who has to kind of be the strong one while everybody else kind of falls apart. And that's, that's just the way death is. Mm-hmm. So, because there's things to take care of after someone dies, you know. So some interesting facts, um, I guess Deborah, Deborah Winger's kind of notorious for being a pain in the tuchus to. Oh, really? I guess she, she farted in Shirley MacLaine's face. <laughs> and then she also like during the love scene with Jack Nicholson, 
she went she was under the covers and licked Shirley MacLaine's leg during that scene like there's wait why was Deborah Winger in that scene she wasn't in the scene I guess the director was good with people playing practical jokes because he wanted to keep the tension up and that wow how weird I can't imagine Shirley MacLaine tolerating that very well well yeah they fought a lot um, and, then, and then the other interesting thing the when Jack Nicholson's in the water and then they kiss because you know he got thrown from the car he oh yeah he um not ad-libbed what is it called improvised sticking his hand down her the front of her top so she had no clue that was coming which makes me wonder how stuck maybe his hand really was like maybe he couldn't yeah <laughs> maybe he couldn't get it out of there because she yeah I know sometimes I think directors do weird things like that. Like who's that childhood? There's a child actor and they couldn't get the scene right. So the director went and told him that his dog was just hit by a car in the parking lot to get him to cry. I think it was Corey Feldman. Maybe later he was like, next time just do the damn scene. Right. Like mm-hmm. it was like, no wonder sometimes Corey directors. Yeah. No kidding. And I've heard, I've heard that there's a lot of things like they'll do that to keep the tension up or directors will create like hostile environments between two actors who are constantly fighting in the movie to keep it kind of going. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is weird. Cause I'm like, they're actors. <laughs> they're supposed to be able to do that on their own. You don't need to direct it <laughs> like off scene, you know, well, should we rate it? Sure. Should we use yeah. Corvette, space shuttles, station wagon, station wagons, <laughs> uh, CCs of morphine, Renoirs? Uh, oh, oh yes. Let's do Renoirs. That's a good one. Renoirs. And what's our rating system? It's out of three, one five. out of five, one to five. Okay. Um, I'd give it three Renoirs. Um, I do think it was one of the better movies that we've seen. I don't know. I, I, after the discussion, I probably would have given it more, but after the discussion, I do see it did have flaws. And so, yeah, I'd say three, three and a half. Let's say three and a half. I'm the same where like before the discussion, I was like, I'm going to give this the most that I've given. Cause I think, I think I consistently give threes. I think I've given maybe a two <laughs> or a one, but it's always like I a might- three. Yeah, but, and I think um, I might have given Romancing the Stone more, but <laughs> well, we're not it comparing, might have been three and a half. We're not comparing but, movies to movies, though. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> true, 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 true. Okay. Um, so I think I'm also going to give it three and a half Renoirs. There's great acting, and I did love the dysfunctionality of the relationships, but they're still being love in them. Like, yes. too many times that stories make the easy choice that if somebody's a pain in the ass or somebody's an asshole, that that's they're the bad guy and it's easy to just cut them out but that's not how it is in life right exactly so well and i just think the complexity relationships are very complex yeah beverly i'm thinking i was I, coming into this i was going to give it closer to two but you guys may have talked to me up a little bit too. Uh, <laughs> you talked I us mean, down and we talked you up <laughs> i think like like i said i mean at first i watched it and i was like yeah good this is a solid three and then later i was thinking about it, i was like no there's things that just like uh, didn't like i like i was discussing before just things where i wanted more meat more resolution more context you know i guess i always really resented the pitting of the childbearing housewife against the mm-hmm. abortion having new york divorcee business 
working crowd. I just always thought that was super irritating. <sighs> Maybe two and a half, three, somewhere in two and a half, three range, <laughs> two and three quarters, two and three quarters. It was, I mean, great acting, really, you're, you're spot on that the complexity of family relationships and life is, is well portrayed. It's just not quite satisfying somehow mm-hmm. for me. Okay. And Beverly, I think it's your pick. Oh, hold on. No, I got, there was something we were talking about that triggered um, the world according to Garb. Yes. Let's do that. I've been wanting to rewatch that for ages and I keep on not. Oh, that's a lot to unpack. Well, thank you ladies. Uh, thank you. And I guess next time we'll be talking about the world according to Garb. Sounds, Sounds good. there you have it. Next episode will be The World According to Garp, which can be found on streaming platforms out there. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Come to laugh, come to cry, come to care, come to terms.